Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Mike, this has been a tremendous report, and luckily we get some information from Minneapolis Fed President. I believe uh, you have him online. Uh, good morning, Neil. Good morning. How are you? Good. Neil Kashkari is the president of uh, the Minneapolis Fed, and he's joining us now on Jobs Day, and we thank you very much for doing it. We've just been tied up here talking about this big surprise of a number. Uh, I know you haven't had a chance to digest all of this, but does it tell you anything? Well, I mean, I think it confirms that I feel very good about our policy approach, which is outcome-based monetary policy, which is let's actually allow the labor market to recover. Let's not just forecast that it's going to recover. Let's actually allow the labor market to recover, get back to what we call maximum employment and get back to 2% inflation. And then we'd be in a position to talk about normalizing monetary policy. So as Chair Powell said a week ago, we've had one great jobs report. Let's not declare victory yet. Let's let the labor market heal and then we can move from there. Well, let me ask you the question John Farrow was just posing, and that is, is this because the weak hiring, is this because of the generous unemployment benefits, or is there something else going on? Well, we hear all the same anecdotes. I was listening as I was checking my emails. I was listening uh, and trying to process the report to your conversation. I think it's all of the things you talked about, Mike. Yes, of course, there are uh, people who are on the sidelines who are getting generous unemployment, and they say, look, we know this is going to expire in three or four months. And I think the, uh, and they're individually saying, we think the job market's going to be strong in three or four months, so why don't I just wait? We know that dynamic is there. We also know there are still massive health care, uh, excuse me, child care shortages that are holding back families from fully reentering the workforce. That's disproportionately uh, affecting women. And there are still a lot of people who are nervous about the virus, who maybe have not yet been vaccinated or who would need to get back on a mass transit in order to get to their job. And they're nervous about getting onto a crowded bus or getting onto a crowded subway. So I think there are a number of factors, but most of these factors should work themselves out over the next few months if the vaccinations continue, if the variants don't flare back up again. That's why I feel pretty confident that most of the pricing pressures that we're going to see are, in fact, going to be transitory and we can get something back to a, a full economy, you know, in the not foreseeable. I mean, in the foreseeable future. Well, I guess uh, the word to describe the folks on Wall Street this morning with this number is gobsmacked. But you don't seem to be. Uh, you're not surprised. Well, it's not that I forecast this, certainly not at all, but this is a highly uncertain environment that we're in. This is, this is not the financial crisis that we experience, so it's going to be a different recovery. This is a healthcare crisis and how the American people respond. You know, it wasn't simply, it was not simply about lockdowns that led to the economic downturn a year ago. We locked ourselves down as Americans because we were scared. We were nervous. I certainly haven't been out to the movies in a year or a year and a half. I'm getting, I'm for the first time taking my family on a plane tomorrow because my wife and I have been vaccinated. And so a lot of this is about individuals feeling safe to go back to normal, to get back on the buses, to get back on the airplanes. And how do we get there so that the vast majority of Americans feel safe again? I do think it's going to take time and it's going to be, there are going to be ups and downs. Do you think it's going to take significantly higher wages to attract workers? Are we going to see uh, kind of a wage push here? 
I mean, to be honest with you, I hope so. I hope we see employers step up. That was one of the things that was extraordinary about the last recovery. It took 10 years to return to something like maximum employment. And I'm not even sure that we quite got there before the pandemic hit. And it was only in the last few years of the recovery, after many years of businesses complaining that they couldn't find workers, only in the last couple of years did we finally see wages start to pick up, especially for those lowest income workers. Businesses will do anything they can do to try to meet their labor needs. And the last thing they want to do is raise wages. And so if we can get them to say, you know what, I, I raise my prices for every other input into my business. Maybe I ought to pay fair market wages for my wage for my labor. I hope that process happens more quickly. We can draw people back in, return to something like maximum employment and then really drive this economy. I read a story this morning, an analysis this morning ahead of the payrolls report. It said this jobs number is going to be bad news for Joe Biden because it's going to make the case we don't need more stimulus. Do you think the fact that we get this low hiring level makes a case for more fiscal help? Well, I think there's a lot in the pipeline from obviously the CARES Act and the Recovery Act that was passed. It's very large. That's still working its way, still getting out there. Um, and so I for personally, I think that that combined with monetary policy is probably going to be enough to restore and get, you know, get through this pandemic and get to something like uh, full employment or maximum employment and get the economy recovered. Now, I know the administration and Congress are debating other fiscal measures for longer term economic competitiveness. And I think those are important debates to have. But in terms of just bridging the downturn from the pandemic, from the COVID crisis, I think there's a lot of fiscal stimulus still in the pipeline and uh, monetary policy is still you know, on full throttle to try to get us through this. And then you know, Congress and the administration can debate their longer term priorities. Uh, speaking of monetary policy on full throttle, uh, last night the Fed warned that elevated risk appetite is raising risks of what your report euphemistically called a repricing event. Many on Wall Street blame you for that. They say you're no longer taking away the punch bowl, but you've become the bartender. What's your reaction to that? Well, you know, um, I haven't done the math on what the how many Americans are still out of work. From as of yesterday, the number in my head was around 8.5 million Americans, roughly call it 8 million, out of work who were working before the pandemic. And the labor force has grown, or the population has grown since then. So it's probably closer to 9 or 10 million who want to work and should be working who are out of work. So for Wall Street, my friends on Wall Street, and I have a lot of them, I hear from them all the time complaining about the Fed's policies that, that are you know, mucking up their trading strategies. I have zero sympathy because there are still 8 to 10 million Americans who want to work who ought to be working and we we need to rebuild this labor market and put them back to work. And then at that point, there will be plenty of time to normalize monetary policy. And if we're if we're wrong, if these inflation surprises are not transitory, but end up being more persistent, we have the tools to deal with that. We have the tools to tighten monetary policy to keep inflation in check. I'm not worried about that. Uh, what I am worried about is not having another 10-year recovery for our labor market. That's devastating to millions of Americans, and we need to put them back to work much more quickly. Yet the question a lot of people ask is, do you still need to do $120 billion a month, or would less get you the same result that you're getting now? You know, I would say this, quantitative easing is an inexact science. And what we're doing right now, I think, is supporting certainly the housing market, supporting financial markets in generally, keeping the yield curve lower, 
keep the 10-year down, which bleeds through into all sorts of other different interest rates across the economy. So we're providing a lot of support to accelerate that recovery. You know, could, could somebody argue, oh, instead of 120, it should be 110? Sure, we could have that debate. But this is a, you know, it's an inexact science. So I'm firmly in the camp of what we are doing right now is providing a lot of support. Once we've actually seen substantial further progress, which is the forward guidance that we've given uh, to get back to our dual mandate goals, that will be the time to consider changing it. I don't see any reason right now to change something that is working and providing support to the financial system and to the economy. Interestingly, there's a, a $40 billion options bet that uh, at Jackson Hole, Jay Powell will say something to change the market's perception of when you might taper. Uh, what would you say to that kind of timing in terms of when, you, when the markets might hear from you? I'm not going to speculate on that. I'm sure there are multi-billion dollar bets on all sorts of different things. Uh, you know, let the markets have their fun and make those bets. Uh, we are focused on returning to our dual mandate goals, uh, uh, you know, getting back to maximum employment. And we've said we want to see substantial further progress. And today's jobs report, for all those people who've been saying, oh, my gosh, the Fed needs to normalize quantitative easing, today's jobs report is just an example of we have a long way to go. And let's not prematurely declare victory. Does this change your forecast for what happens the rest of the year in terms of growth and employment? I need to look at the details underneath the numbers, which I haven't obviously been able to do. Uh, my gut tells me no. I think I've been in the camp that it's going to it may take a few years before we get back to full or maximum employment because we still have a deep hole. Remember, this eight, nine, 10 million no number of Americans who ought to be working, who want to work, who are not working. <clears throat> that is still roughly like the great financial crisis the deepest part of the great financial crisis. So yes, there are sectors of the economy that are doing great. There are sectors of the economy that have fully reopened, but we are basically in a labor market like we were in in 2009, and it's gonna take time. And I hope it doesn't, like I'm saying, I don't want it to take 10 years. Hopefully we can put this back together in a year or two, uh, but I just don't wanna declare victory prematurely. Uh, I guess I got to ask you one more question before we go, and that is uh, everybody was uh, predicting that we were going to get the Fed's inflation target met by the end of the year or sometime early next year. Uh, do you think that could be off, that maybe it's going to be a little bit harder to pull prices up? <clears throat> Well, I think mathematically it's not going to be that hard to do it because we had such low inflation readings more than a year ago, and those numbers are now rolling out of the math. So I think between energy prices and arithmetic, you're going to see a short-term pop. But just those, that short-term pop in inflation is not at all going to convince me that act, that actually means underlying inflation is back to 2% or above 2%. And that's what I'm really going to be focused on. And so we're going to look at, you know, if you look at inflation expectations based on market-based measures, the inflation expectations for the next few years have ticked up, but they're basically where they were for the longer horizon. And so uh, we have a lot of data that we need to look at to try to, to try to determine, is this just math or is this actually underlying inflation that has ticked up? I do think it's going to take more time for underlying inflation to tick up. And I do think it's going to be tied to the labor market. I'll be very surprised if we think that underlying inflation is actually climbing back to 2% or above 2% when we still have millions and millions of Americans out of work who ought to be working and who ultimately will want to work. Neil Kashkari, the president of the Minneapolis Fed, thanks so much for joining us this morning on this Jobs Day. The markets have shifted off the shocking labor report. That means it is a good time always for us to speak with Martin Walsh, Secretary of Labor. Here is our John Farrow. 
Bloomberg TV and radio is Marty Walsh, the US Secretary of Labor. Secretary Walsh, it's great to see you again. Great to catch up. Let's just start with the yeah. payrolls report. And I would love just to get your initial reaction to a big downside surprise, at least for many of the people on Wall Street. Yeah, you know, we added 266,000 jobs this month. Uh, and under normal circumstances, that would be a great month. Uh, when you look at the, the last three months here in the United States, we've added an average of over 500,000 jobs per month. And that's a change from the previous three months where 60,000 jobs were added. Uh, we still have a, ste a steep climb. We still have ways to go. Uh, another positive number here, two positive numbers, is that the leisure economy, which includes well, restaurants and, and travel, uh, is up significantly as far as job, job gain. And more people looked for jobs in the month of April than the previous month. So we're seeing positive signs as we continue to move forward here. Secretary Walsh, there seems to be a ton of demand everywhere you look. You see it in all the data points. The conversation we've had since 8.30 Eastern, as soon as this number dropped, it's what is happening on the supply side, what is holding people back, whether it's the PMI or the ISM data that we've seen earlier this week in America, the labor pool is tight. Labor's the biggest issue. Logistics and supply can't keep up. There's a labor shortage. In your opinion, in the administration's opinion, what do you think is holding back the labor market at the moment on the supply side, not on demand? Well, I, I think what's happening is in some way, some areas, the, these industries have gone from zero and they're, they're, they're ramping up to 100 overnight. And I think that, again, it's about getting people into these jobs. I think that's going to be key as we move forward here. Uh, I also, I think that th there are some barriers still. People still are concerned about the virus. We have issues around childcare. We have issues around schools are open in America, but some are hybrid where people are learning in person, some are learning outside. Uh, so we have issues around that. We also have people, the vaccine and, and making sure that people get vaccinated. So th I think there's a little bit, there's a little bit in different areas. One of the things that, that probably concerns me the most is that the, the, the communities of color unemployment rate is nearly double, uh, well not quite double, but it, it's higher than uh, the unemployment rate is an average in the country. And those are numbers that really concern, concern me and also getting women back into the workforce. So I still think, I still think there's, there's lots happening here. And I think as we get through the next month or so, we will start to see a lot of that clarity happening where people will be going back into the workforce in bigger numbers um, as, as we move forward. You're well aware of what the governors of Montana and South Carolina think of the yep. additional unemployment benefits. And for the benefit of our audience, Secretary Walsh, I'm going to read out some of the quotes just to get your reaction to them. The vast expansion of federal unemployment benefits Benefits is now doing more harm than good. That was the Montana governor earlier this week, the governor of South Carolina, saying what was intended to be a short-term financial assistance for the vulnerable and displaced during the height of the pandemic has turned into a dangerous federal entitlement. That's the talking points coming from the governor of Montana and South Carolina and elsewhere yeah. in the country too, and in part on Wall Street from some of the economists as well. I haven't heard the administration's response to that. Secretary Walsh, what is your reaction to their well, take on the situation? My reaction is we still have millions of Americans that are out of work. We still have millions of Americans worried about putting food on the table, paying their mortgages, paying their rents, keeping, keeping, keeping them, the, the, their families moving forward. Uh, you know, and, and there's still concern here. There's been lots of industry as well in this, in this country that, that have, have disappeared. Uh, businesses and companies that people work for disappeared during this pandemic. So again, we still, as I mentioned earlier, we still have a, a steep hill to climb and we're gonna continue to climb that hill as we move forward here. Uh, and and, and, and can hopefully work to get every American uh, who wants to work back to work. And that, that's, that's the goal of the president. That was the goal of the American Rescue Plan. Uh, that's the goal of the administration. That's my goal here at the Department of Labor, uh, to continue to add those numbers and get people back, get the economy continuing moving forward. People won't be surprised that that's your position. And often when someone comes on a program like this, Secretary, I will say to them, how will you know if you're wrong? 
And when we look at the additional $300 a week in unemployment benefits that run through September, how would you know if you're wrong? The childcare issue is clearly an issue. And I mentioned earlier this morning that anyone who was brought up by a single parent understands that issue, that if the school is closed, there's a problem getting back to work. That's plain yeah. and simple, it's very clear. But for you, sir, how would you know if you were wrong, that the more complete picture actually has something to do with the additional unemployment benefits? I mean, I, I think it, I talk to the American people every day, and when I'm out talking to people, I mean, there's concerns with childcare, there's concerns with education as far as schools not being open. There's also concerns with people's personal health. They're concerned about the virus, they're concerned about their family. Uh, there's, there's concern there, and I'm not saying that's the only reasons, uh, but you know, when, when I think about uh, the unemployment, unemployment, thank God we had un have unemployment because of, of the, 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 what the economy would have, would have happened to the economy if we didn't have the unemployment insurance program uh, during the CARES Act when they gave additional $600 and, and during the rescue plan where it's $300, it's, it's significantly less than what it was uh, under the first plan that, that went through Congress. Uh, and, and again, as we think about recovering, I'm not focusing on unemployment. I'm, foc I'm not fo focused on unemployment benefits. I'm focusing on how do we get these sectors opened up again. And, and we're working to make sure these sectors are opening up. That's what the president's focused on. That's that's what his team is focused on, making sure that we open up these sectors. And again, uh, there, there's some good highlights and bright spots in this report today. Uh, we're seeing the retail sector picking up. So again, I, to answer your question, I, how do I know? I'm not sure I guess I can give you an accurate answer other than saying that unemployment is important right now still in America for too many Americans. The governors of Montana and of South Carolina are looking to remove these benefits. I don't think it would surprise any, anyone if other states followed in the weeks to come. Have you spoken to them, Secretary Walsh? Have you talked to them this week? No, I haven't talked to them yet. Uh, I, I know they've been having contacts with different people in the administration, I believe. Uh, you know, the, the unemployment rate in Montana is, is about 3.5%, uh, which is significantly less than what we're talking about today in the country, which is over 6%. So again, the, the, every state has different factors and, and they're in different spaces. So there's different reasons for, for people's uh, concerns. If you look at the state of Massachusetts, or you look at the state of New York, or you look at California, other places, the unemployment rates are higher in those places because a lot of those industries are still just coming back. So you know, you can't compare apple. You can't compare. It's apples to oranges, not apples to apples. Well, do you think it's apples to oranges to allow each and every state to have the same additional unemployment benefits? And next time around, Secretary Walsh, do you think we need to rethink how we distribute some of those benefits? Well, I think, I think in the American Rescue Plan, the one thing that's in there is a $2 billion investment for us to look at the UI system. And I think that that's something that the pandemic has showed us, is that we have, to, we have an opportunity right now to look at what worked, uh, what didn't work, and how do we strengthen the system for the country and for individual states and territories in this country. Secretary Walsh, good to catch up. Looking forward to catching up again soon. Some big questions, and hopefully we get some answers in the months to come. Jeff Rosenberg at BlackRock, he will recalibrate, as we all will, off this stunning uh, report. Jeff, how would you presume the Fed will recalibrate? Well, you know, I think the first thing is that not any one single report is going gonna, is gonna to determine the Fed's change or its its projections and 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 the expectations are here for a string of reports. Obviously, this report is disappointed that, but the Fed's outlook was not to react to just one report. Now, that's on both the good news and the bad news. And so we'll move on. You know, this report is is very much at odds with all the other data. So, so clearly there's something going on here. Uh, when we look across the broader ranges of the reopening economy, 
it is still consistent with a, a very strong recovery in labor markets and the economy. And the broader message from the broader range of indicators is what the Fed's going to be looking at for determining their policy. You know, near term, obviously, yes, markets are going to react. There's positioning near term that will enter into sentiment. But I think the longer run trajectory is still in place. Jeff, I got to say, bespoke investment coming out and saying that this is the biggest miss relative to expectations for non-farm payrolls going back since at least 1998. This is a massive miss. And it really speaks to the mystery underpinning this jobs market. Jeff, when you take a look at these numbers, I understand it's just one data point, but it's what we've got. Is there any conclusion you can draw, perhaps, that the economy is moving a bit slower than people are already pricing in, at least with respect to equities? So, so again, we need to be a little bit careful here. Um, this is a very different labor market report in that the scale of the numbers that we're looking at, the gross inflows and outflows are unprecedented relative to any of those other historical reports. So the comparison is, is really unfair. And it's something that, that people are missing in that underneath the hood, the degree of flows that are coming as a result of first the collapse, the closing down of the economy in an unprecedented way, and then the reopening of the economy in an unprecedented way makes the variability in these reports at a different level. So I think it's a very unfair comparison to say it's a big miss. Now, of course, it's a big miss, but there are large flows going in and out of this labor market in in, in very unprecedented ways. Yeah. The other thing is, is that in that context, there are very large seasonal adjustment factors that really have a very difficult time in processing this unprecedented degree of reopening. So I'd be careful about that that kind of interpretation. I think to you know to the broader question, uh, you know, it, it it remains that the broader range of indicators are still very supportive of the reopening and the recovery. Jeff, some people will say bonds were right and stocks were wrong. We've been talking all week about this divergence, bond yields remaining steady, uh, while stocks uh, display some belief in inflation, some belief in higher yields. Is that your takeaway, that bonds are right in believing the Fed will hold rates and, frankly, their bond purchases where they are for a much longer time than perhaps stock investors are preparing for? Well, I, I think the comparison at the top line level is very difficult to make because underneath the stock market is where all the action. It's like the duck on the water. It's very calm on the surface and everything's underneath. So there's tremendous rotations going on that are very indicative of a lot of changes in investor viewpoints. On the bond side, you know, the bond side priced in a very rapid increase in growth expectations that we saw through the March period. And those repricings basically kind of ran their course. There are a lot of technical factors that people are pointing at, we're pointing at, you know, around the decline in interest rates in, in, in April. And the bond market faces this technical challenge between demand and supply, where the largest provider of demand, the Fed, is expected at some point, right, that's the debate around tapering, to pull back while Treasury supply increases in an environment of funding that tremendous amount of mm. 
fiscal stimulus. So a lot of what you're seeing isn't necessarily directly this reflection of a view on inflation. Certainly the shape of the curve is steepened. Inflation expectations and tips have increased. But the pace of those increases is certainly slowed as we priced a lot of those changes and expectations in recently. Jeff, thank you so much. Jeff Rosenberg with us with BlackRock. historic day. There's no other way to put it within a natural disaster that spans oh back to Valentine's of a year ago. There have been surprises and shocks along the way. The short-term paper market, full faith and credit and things outside full faith and credit is truly the depth of the market. It is the 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 touch that you have, the pulse of the market tick by tick. Jerome Schneider is expert at this at PIMCO, a perfect guest. Jump Snyder, when you saw the employment report, what did you look at on your Bloomberg terminal or what did you say, I need to look at this in the next 30 minutes? Yeah, good morning. Um, there's, a, there's a variety of things that obviously are coming to mind. One, you know, clearly the trade-off was regard to job and job openings and unemployment. Uh, that's going to be a structural discussion that's going to obviously create implications for the shape of the yield curve and, frankly, rates as we know it. And, and then, you know, as soon as the number came out and you started to digest it, you can quickly see that, you know, the, some of the data is more volatile. We had here at PIMCO thought that some of the high-frequency data stalled a bit in the past month. We didn't forecast this kind of, you know, re, you know with revisions and downward and downward spike. But I think that we expected that, you know, that, 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 that some of the jobs would come back. And then what we actually did see, some of the bright spots in this report, if you want to put, call it that, were that some of the COVID sectors actually did okay during this period. Um, and so I'm not saying that the market is looking through it at this point in time. It, we're clearly lower in yields, although it has rebounded substantially yeah. from the 10-year at 145, clearly. Um, but I think what we are is recognizing the fact that the Fed will probably use this to continue to be, remain vigilant, remain patient, and remain dovish for the uh, foreseeable future. And in the context of the report, look through and try to highlight some of the some of that structural uh, question questioning that goes on. For us in the short-term markets, I think it says one thing that short-term benchmark rates are going to remain very low for a long time, well into 2023. You have overnight repo rates at zero, T-bills close to zero. And this is the challenge for investors is try to balance safety, which is not paying you a lot right now, versus being more opportunistic and where you think risk appropriate risk-adjusted returns might be. And that's going to be the challenge for the next, uh, not just the next few months, but probably the next one to two years as we evolve out of this. All right. So, Jerome, just... This seems this data point here, as as, as you know, uh, uh, exceptional as it was, seems to play right into the rhetoric of Fed Chairman Jay Powell in terms of lower for longer uh, until we see the whites of their eyes. You know, we're going to remain on the sidelines. Uh, is that your expectation? Is that the rhetoric you expect to continue to hear from this Federal Reserve? Yeah, I mean, the Fed has actually been very well coalesced around that rhetoric, um, and, and it's surprising how well you know he's uh, he's effectively corralled some of the dissenting voices, at least in the in the recent future or the recent past. I think in the future, as we look forward, you know, this probably gives a little bit more ammunition to Powell to be into that double sentiment, to be patient, to see what happens and evolves, and to do so clearly in the face of central banks around the world who are looking to reduce their or to to taper, to reduce their stimulus. And we've seen that from the Bank of Canada, we've seen it from the Bank of England. 
even this morning, the ECB, we saw discussion of potential tapering to begin in June. And and I think that that is something that he's going to have to press against. So clearly, the Fed and Jerome Powell wants to be last in that sequencing to even begin to taper and begin that discussion of removing some of the accommodative policy measures that we've seen. So just goes back to the point that these low rates that we're going to see are going to be here for some time. And they're going to do so in the context of making sure that the economy is on firm footing, making sure that some of these structural challenges in employment are somewhat resolved, maybe not entirely resolved, and to get some of the eight to nine million jobs that are still remaining out, um, you know, in in a in in the uh, in, in basically into the uh, discussion points for the market. So, simply put, is he's going to have a long runway? Yep. All right, Jerome. Lower for longer. What does a guy like you in the short term end of the market do? Where do you guys go for any type of yield? Right now, we are, what we're doing is basically looking to the market and trying to create diversified portfolios. Those diversified portfolios are really consisting of looking at high-quality structured credit, asset-backed securities, steering a little bit away from corporate bonds, and just being more sensitive to the sector's selection right now. Jerome, can I ask a question? I mean, I want to digress here in this huge jobs report. <laughs> Please when, do. When you're leading the, the good life in Newport News... Do you guys, <laughs> when you're there like Newport Beach, excuse me, Newport Beach, California, do you guys look south to San Diego or north to Los Angeles? I, I don't know the answer to that, folks. Does the, does the building, we look, we look all around for opportunity. Come oh, on. come on. <laughs> but, but like as a community, are you like north San Diego or are you like south Los Angeles? Yeah, we're perfectly situated between the two. Yeah. You know, I, I think we get the best of both worlds in this regard. Um, you know, a little bit of independent thinking, but at the same time, the ability to to uh, you know start early mornings and, and have a fresh look both what's going on in London and New York, and then then look Jerome, west to Asia. Jerome, you're missing it. I no, I was <laughs> talking Padres or Dodgers. <laughs> I'm a I'm a Yankees fan, Tom. You know that. <laughs> it's like it's like folks. For those of you worldwide in Connecticut, there's a line. It's a secret line in the woods of Eastern Connecticut. And on one side, they're wearing Red Sox hats. And on the other side, they're wearing Yankees hats. I just wanted to bring that up on this historic day. Jerome's going, what are we talking about here? Jerome, we, we, we look at this. And as you mentioned, the chairman has massive runway here. How far out have we really pushed the debate? Are you saying like the debate for 2022 is done? The debate for 2022 is likely not done, but it seems to be seem to have an idea who the winner is. I think the idea to put simply to put it is that the discussion, if you will, around inflation will sort of coalesce as we sort of get better, you know, more firmer inflation into 2022. We believe here that inflation is a little bit overdone right now. At least the fear of inflation is a little bit overdone right now. But in 2022, it's going to come back again as the economy strengthens, as we see PCEs move to, you know, closer to two, as we see CPIs move from 2.3 to 2.5%. These are all discussion points for 2022. Yeah. And then you have a sequencing issue, Tom, and I think this is the key is that simply because you begin to taper and then finishing taper, we're going to probably likely see a sequence which allows you a period of, let's call it six months between the end of the tapering and potential discussions of rate hikes. And I think that really puts us on a prolonged right. path to, to, to that normalization process. So we have a long road ahead of us now. You know, effectively, you know, at this point in time, the, the you know, the, 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 the ghost, the ghost um, right now of, of inflation yeah. 
uh, and, and maybe Volker has, has left the building and is going to be gone for quite a while. I like that. Jerome Schneider, thank you so much. And Paul, with PIMCO, I should say, uh, in Newport News, California. <laughs> I, I nailed that. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.